ask that you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me. We're continuing in our studies today of Luke's Gospel. Uh, Today, pressing through in chapter 17, we come to another miracle story, one in which Christ uh, meets ten needy men, ten lepers, and, uh, and gives him the mercy, gives them rather, the mercy that they have asked for. And we'll see the way that they each respond. And one man uh, particularly responds in thankfulness. That is, in many ways, the theme of this passage, true thankfulness, and the way that true thankfulness reveals a heart of faith. So we're studying together today, Luke chapter 17. We'll begin reading in verse 11, and we'll study together through the end of verse 19. You can find that in most ESVs on page 876. Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 11, and reading through verse 19. Before we Read this word together. Please join me again in prayer that we may seek God's blessing on our study together. Let's pray. Gracious and glorious Lord, we thank you for your living word. We pray that you would use it to uh, lay asunder spirit and body, soul and joint and marrow, that you would lay us bare before yourself and before your living word, so that you, by your Holy Spirit, would create us anew in Christ. We ask in his name and for his glory. Amen. Well, hear now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 17, beginning to read in verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go, and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. Back in 2004 in a suburb outside of Cape Town, South Africa, uh, Arnie Faderby returned to his home to a surprise. He walked in to see a group of nine thieves taking his belongings and stuffing them into bags and sacks in order to carry them off. And uh, if you think Arnie was surprised, imagine being uh, the thieves. Uh, They dropped a lot of what they had and took what they could and ran out the back of the house with Arnie following close behind. Most of them got away, but the newspaper reports say that Arnie was able to toss one of the hoodlums into the pool in his backyard. But once the uh, the thief was in the water, he began to thrash, he began to sink, and he began to shout for help. It was obvious that he couldn't swim, and Arnie says, I stood there looking at the man, and I thought, I couldn't let him die. So I dived into the pool, and I rescued him. Now, as you hear that story, I imagine that many of you are sitting there thinking that you know how it turns out. This must be one of those 
uh, restoration stories because Arnie must be a Christian and once he gets this man out of the pool, they probably sit down and have a heart-to-heart chat and this man is converted and he turns himself in and his whole life is changed because somebody cared enough to rescue him. Well, in real life, when Arnie pulled him out of the pool, the man pulled a knife on him uh, and called for his friends to come back and help him. And uh, Arnie says, we were still standing near the pool, and when I saw the knife, I threw him back in. (laughs) But he was gasping for air, he was drowning, so I rescued him again. Well, this time after he pulled him out, Arnie was so angry about the knife that he held him down and began to strangle the man. And when the police showed up, they saved this man's life for the third time in the same day. Uh, This, uh, I think, uh, in some small way, illustrates humanity's capacity for ingratitude. We know how it works. We know that we are very often like the Israelites in the wilderness, who cried out to God for deliverance with one breath, and it seems almost in the very next breath, we're complaining about the menu in the desert. Ingratitude doesn't always show up as stabbing the hand that saves you. Most of the time, it's, it's as simple as our normal entitled expectations. David Brooks uh, wrote that, I'm sometimes grumpier when I stay at a nice hotel. I have certain expectations about the service that's going to be provided. I get impatient if I have to crawl around on the floor looking for a power outlet, if the shower controls are unfathomable, if the place considers itself too fancy to put a coffee machine in each room. As I'm sometimes happier at a budget motel, my expectations are lower. The waffle maker in the breakfast area is a treat. That's the sort of thing that ruins our thankfulness to the Lord. It's that expectation, that that sense of entitlement that believes that, you know what, we probably deserve all of the good things that come from God's hand. It's that expectation that uh, that looks at God and asks for his favors and yet forgets to thank him for his blessings. And it leaves us seeking what he can give us without ever seeking the glory of the giver. In the verses that we've just read, Jesus encountered ten men who were full of need and only one man who was full of gratitude. And the difference between those two was faith to receive God's goodness as unmerited and unexpected. I think in these these verses there are at least two lessons that we can learn here. It's easy to divide this almost exactly in half with with two lessons to find here. The first lesson that we find in verses 1 to 14 is that Jesus is able to meet our needs with mercy. Jesus is able to meet our needs with his mercy. Now Luke sets the stage for us, he says, in a village between Samaria and Galilee. Perhaps it was a kind of border town, a kind of in-between place that didn't really belong to either culture of the day. And since we know in John chapter 4 from the woman at the well that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, that probably the people who lived in a place like this on the border between Samaria and Galilee, well, they were probably the kind of people who came there because they didn't have any better options. Maybe even the residents of this village were already the outcast, already 
the untouchables. Maybe they were just your regular, run-of-the-mill, unobservant Jews who had already had enough of polite society and they wanted to go somewhere that the things were a little looser. It was an unlikely place. And yet Jesus was there. He was there because Luke tells us again that he was on his way up to Jerusalem. This isn't the first time we've seen this. Now for eight chapters, all the way back in chapter 9, Luke said that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face to go to the center of Jewish religion. He set his face to go up in order to be cast out, in order to be rejected, in order to make his soul an offering for guilt. And Jesus is going up, and on his way he was met by ten lepers. Well, we don't know what they believed about Jesus. We don't know if they heard the debates among the people and whether he was, whether he was a prophet, whether he was a, a miracle worker. Maybe he was sent by God. We don't know if they heard any of the authorities, as we find in John, threatening people with excommunication if anyone claimed that he was the Christ. I suppose if they had heard those things, it wouldn't do much good anyway. Because as, as lepers, they were already so far outside of normal humanity, they were considered little better than walking corpses. Well, we don't know if they believed that Jesus was a prophet sent by God. We don't know if, if they believed that he was the rightful king over Israel. Or if they simply heard that he had healed others just like them. We don't know what they believed about Jesus, but we know what they knew about themselves. We know that they knew they were in need. They knew they were desperate. They knew their own condition, which is why they stood so far off. They knew that if Jesus was not able to help them, it was unlikely that anybody else could help them either. You know about leprosy in the Bible. You're familiar with the New Testament. You know the way that leprosy was the most feared of all diseases. It was the kind of thing that it was a terrible, debilitating, crippling disease. It started in the extremities and it worked its way into your bones. Actually, it began to work far before it ever showed up. A recent, uh, more recent, uh, modern uh, research into leprosy, now known as Hansen's disease, uh, shows that it is actually a, a, a bacterial infection uh, and it gets into your system sometimes between five and ten years before the symptoms show up. So by the time it actually shows up, you're already well advanced. And here were these men. It's working its way into their bones slowly, unstoppably. It turns soft and feeling flesh into bloated and numb calluses. It leaves the sufferers disfigured. In this culture, it left people isolated. There was a, a ceremonial uncleanliness associated with leprosy, and it meant that lepers were separated from worship, they were separated from their families, they were separated from society in general. Leviticus chapter 13, verse 46, 46 the leprous person is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling place shall be outside of the camp. And so we know that they knew they were desperate for whatever Jesus could do for them, because they stood far off, and they raised up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Actually, the voice of leprosy was one of the most terrible curses of the disease. 
because it wor as it worked its way into every other system of your body, it also uh, worked into your larynx, and it made your voice perpetually hoarse. It turned your words into croaks. And this last vestige, this, this ability to speak to other people, this, this last remnant of human connection, typically when a leper went throughout towns or, or was around anybody else, they had to use that last vestige of human connection to isolate themselves even further, to croak out as well as they could, unclean, unclean, so that others would know to stay away. And here they are lifting up their voice, probably with all the effort they can, calling out, to Jesus for mercy. I suppose that's what you would have been asking for as well. If you were like them, if you, if you knew what it was to have a problem so deep, so desperate, that it left you sick and twisted, it left you without hope in your ability to help yourself anymore. And I can't imagine any world in which they would have called their condition a good thing, but actually in the moment of crying out for mercy, their desperation was the greatest gift they had ever received. It was a blessing of an affliction that is, that is so deep that you can't any longer just keep on busying yourself with all those mundane tasks. You can't just bury yourself your head in the sand and imagine that it's all going to blow over, that you can't just to paint that sort of a situation with that kind of uh, optimistic uh, thought that, you know, I, I, I bet things will get better eventually. If I just keep on doing the normal things, everything will, will pan out, everything will work out on its own if I just leave it that way. Now they cried out to Jesus because they had no other option. And maybe you've been there too. It's not normally as dramatic as leprosy. It's not always this earth-shaking, sort of life-changing affliction. It could be just that steady drip of tiny struggles that drips so much it turns into a flood that you can no longer deal with. And you come to an end of yourself and you cry out for mercy and you cry to one that you have heard is able to help sufferers like you. Sometimes it happens through physical pain, physical suffering. Sometimes it's an emotional, relational struggle. Sometimes it's a loneliness that can be felt. The Lord uses all sorts of circumstances to get our attention, to draw us out of ourselves and to see our desperation, to draw us to cry out to Him for mercy. Sometimes He takes a direct route. Sometimes he shows us the putrid reality of our spiritual condition, which is what he's getting at, by the way. But whatever it is, and, and however you arrive there, praise the Lord if he has given you an affliction so great that you can't just bury your head under the covers and tell yourself that it's going to go away on its own. Praise the Lord because he knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows that very often that is where we have to be before we begin to call to him for mercy. We have to sense our need. We have to know our desperation. And that's where these men were. And when they cried out for mercy to the Lord, they learned something of the power of Jesus Christ. For them it came in the form of a miracle that was completely devoid of fanfare. You know, back in, 
in Luke chapter 5, he tells us about Jesus healing another man who he says there was full of leprosy, well advanced in the disease. And there in chapter 5, Jesus did the unthinkable. He reached down and he touched the unclean man. He pronounced him clean and healed and whole and he restored him to life and to his family. Nothing like that here. <laughs> These verses almost remind us more of Naaman and his reaction when he goes to Elisha to be healed of his own leprosy. He says there in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 11, I thought he would come out to me and stand and call upon the name of his God and, and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Not this time. There's no waving. There's no touching. There, there, there's, there's no washing in a river. Jesus simply commands these men to go and do what only clean lepers could do. It's a test of faith, you see. They don't yet see their healing, but he says, go. Go present yourselves to the priest. Now, priests in those days were, were God's public health administrators. They were scattered throughout every village in Israel. They wouldn't have to go down to Jerusalem as Jesus was going down to Jerusalem. They could go back to their own villages and, and visit their own local priests, and, and he, would, uh, he would see them, and, and they were authorized to declare the clean from the unclean. And Jesus is doing a very important thing by sending these men back to the priests. For one, he is upholding the righteous law of God. He never transgressed in anything. He never told people that he cured of, of leprosy and made them clean to just ignore what God says in his law. He sent them back. He told them in, in chapter 5, he told the man to go back and perform the sacrifices that Moses said for cleanliness and for purification. So Jesus is upholding the law, but he's also sending them back to the local authorities who could restore these men. They could declare them clean in the eyes of the law, in the eyes of society. They could restore them to their families. They could restore them to hope and to life and to all of their relationships. They could restore them to the worshiping body. It was a miracle, the likes of which nobody had ever seen before. And it makes you wonder if the men who asked for this mercy even believed that it was possible. They had enough faith to try. They had enough faith to take Jesus at least a little bit seriously and were told that as they went, they were cleansed. As they went. Now that's probably after they left. Anybody who might have been watching is probably while they're on the road back to their own places. It was probably while they were separated from any other eyewitnesses. It was only as they believed Jesus' word enough to try in his solution that they were healed. And they're able to feel. They're able to speak. They're able to move again in a way that they hadn't since it seems like a previous existence. You know, Josephus in the first century said that to heal a leper was just about the same thing as raising a dead person. That's what Jesus was doing in a sense. These desperate men with just enough faith to, to listen to Jesus and to take his guidance, they tasted the power that can raise dead men to life. They experienced a kind of a flicker of the Holy Spirit power that would raise Jesus from the grave after his triumph on Calvary. And that power is available today. 
do not miss what Luke seems unable or unwilling to let us miss. Do not miss the fact that Jesus meets these men on his way up to Jerusalem. He puts that in there for a reason, that we would see it, that we would connect these two. He's able to raise them from the dead, but he's going up to make himself a sacrifice for sinners, to lay down his own life. Do not miss the fact that Jesus began his healing ministry in Galilee, in Capernaum, not far from here, and he did it in one of his early ministries, one of his early miracles, by raising up and by healing a paralyzed man. Why? So that we would know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. It wasn't just about the healing. It was about the spiritual reality. Do not forget what 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 tells us. That according to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That means that this story is here to teach us a spiritual lesson. This lesson is not that God will heal all of our diseases and all of our maladies if we only ask in the right way. The lesson here is not that when you come to Jesus desperate, you always get what you want. The lesson is that Jesus is able to meet our needs with his mercy. And our greatest need is the forgiveness of our sins. He's come to take our guilt upon himself. He's come to assure us that when we recognize our debilitating, degenerative, terminal problem of sin, that he is more than capable of commanding us into cleanness. That was the lesson he was trying to teach ten desperate men in a village, somewhere between Galilee and Samaria. Sadly, only one of those men learned the full power of Christ's mercy. That brings us to the second lesson of this passage. And that is that true faith receives God's grace with thanksgiving. True faith receives God's grace with thanksgiving. In the second half of the passage, one of these ten men does what we ought to expect is the natural response of the heart of faith. Verse 15, one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. In most families, this is the moment that parents long to see in their children. Because birthday after birthday and Christmas after Christmas, mothers and fathers stand over the shoulders of their children and they nudge them. Thank you. Every time they open a gift, and, and some kids catch on a little more quickly, and some gifts are more easy, easier to be excited about. But maybe by the time they get to be teenagers and, and they're well-mannered, it's hard to tell a difference between whether they're really thankful from the heart or whether they've simply learned to parrot back what they know is expected of them. But then comes that moment. The moment that they receive that, that unimaginable pinch me, I might be sleeping sort of gift that they never expected anyone would ever give to them, and their eyes go wide, and they can do nothing but look at the gift, and look at the giver, and look at the gift, and look at the giver, and they can't stop saying thank you. All of that birthday gratitude, all of that Christmas thankfulness, it's all a tiny trickle. 
compared to the ocean of thanksgiving that floods the heart of the believer who recognizes God's mercy in Jesus Christ. G.K. Chesterton said this. He said, the worst moment for the atheist is when he's really thankful and has nobody to thank. But the opposite of that is also true. So that the great saint may be said to mix all his thoughts with thanks. All goods look better when they look like gifts. And when we learn to connect our desperation, when we learn to connect our need with God's mercy in Christ, that's what happens. We come by faith to trust the God who saves those who cannot save themselves. And he opens our eyes to see that all that we have and all that we are and all that we hope is a gift from his hands. And in Chesterton's words, all of our goods look like gifts when we come to trust the one who saves those who can't save themselves. And you see this as the natural response of faith all throughout the New Testament, full of passages talking about thanksgiving to God for his mercy to us. Romans chapter 6, verse 17, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become slaves of righteousness. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. You can multiply examples. We could be here for a while. Seeing and, and tracing out the threads of thanksgiving and, and gratitude among believers in the New Testament. You can do your own study. You can see how often the Holy Spirit stands over your shoulders and nudges you. Say thank you. Tell God thank you for the gifts that he's given for your salvation. But not only for your salvation, but for, for all the things that he does. Every good gift that comes down from the Father of lights. You, you hear that as you read the New Testament. That's the nudge that's behind you. And this man, this healed leper, comes and kneels at Jesus' feet without needing to be nudged. The other nine are, are continuing off to the priest. They're doing what Jesus said, but they're, they're rejoicing so much in their own restoration. They're, they're making so many preparations for the sacrifices uh, that, that they miss the point, and only one leper returns to the one who actually restored him. The other nine are, are going to go through the process that's required to enjoy their gift. But only this one man comes back to praise the hand of the giver. Now it's at that point, I think, that we realize that, that for all of the joy and for all of the thankfulness that we find in this passage, one of the central teachings here actually is an indictment of the way that most of us receive God's gifts most of the time. It is an indictment against our thanklessness to the Lord. Many people are like the nine. If they ever call out to God at all, it's because they're asking for something that they think they need. And once God gives it to them, it's easy to take it for granted. It's easy to forget that desperation and that need that drew them to the Lord and drew them to cry out for mercy in the first place. 
It's easy to see these things as, as required or expected or, or somehow owed to them. John Calvin says it is too common a disease that when we're urged by necessity, we seek God. When we've obtained our wishes, forgetfulness swallows up our piety. That's how many people act. Worse yet, I think many people cry out to God and they ask for something that they think they need, and if God does not answer in the way they expect, well, then they begin to grumble. And they begin to complain. They, they take it as an indication that, that maybe God doesn't care, or, or maybe he can't help, or maybe he's just not there at all. But whether it ends up in, in callous unbelief or just normal run-of-the-mill ingratitude, both of those reactions expose a faithless heart. It reveals a person who will not take God at his word, a person who is not satisfied with what he provides for his people. This is the teaching moment in this passage. And Jesus turns to the crowds who are around them, and he begins to ask a few questions to, to expose, uh, to draw attention to the thankless majority. Verse 17, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner. No one came back except the Samaritan. The outsider among outsiders. The one that no Jew in his right mind in this day would expect to be thankful to the God of Israel, certainly not to a healer of Israel, for his mercy. Yeah, Jews didn't have any dealings with Samaritans, but it worked in the other direction as well. Nobody expected it, and yet he returned while the others went about their business. Actually, it's the pattern that we've seen all throughout Luke's gospel. That in the places where Jesus works his miracles, in the places that he does his ministry, the vast majority of the people who saw him and received his earthly ministry did not turn to him in faith and repentance. They witnessed his miracles. They received back their dead. They ate his bread on the hilltops in the wilderness. They heard his call to repentance. They witnessed him cleansing the lepers. They witnessed him casting out demons. They witnessed him doing wonderful, miraculous, mighty things, and yet most of them did not turn to him in faith. And they remained just as materially uh, spiritually unchanged as when they first met him. And so Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, verse 13, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. He goes on to condemn Capernaum as well. Woe to you, he will say the places where the majority of his ministry was done, where the majority of the people never responded in faith to what he was offering and who he was. The people went about their thankless existence. They imagined that all of this goodness they're receiving from God, well, it was probably owed to them. It was the kind of thing you ought to expect. But to the thankful Samaritan, he has a different word. Verse 19. And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Actually, the word there, made you well, the word is saved, salvation, 
Your faith has saved you. And we ought to understand it in this context in the fullest sense of the term. Because here's a miracle that throughout this passage has consistently been referred to as a healing, a cleansing, a cleansing. And then now, finally, the language of salvation shows up in different language to reveal that of of these ten men, only one of them received the fullness of Christ's gift. The others received their good things in this life. Much like the the rich man in the parable in the previous chapter, they received toes and hands and and feet that could work and voices that could speak. And they, they received restoration to their relationships and they received their good things in this life from the mercy of Christ. But for all that, their hearts remained just as calloused, just as unmoved as they were at the first. And for all their desperation... They did not believe unto eternal life. It's true that ten men went home healed that day. Only one went home a child of God. Only one went home justified. Not because he was thankful, mind you. Jesus Jesus doesn't say your thankfulness has saved you. Because you were grateful and the others were ungrateful, because you had a better disposition, that's that's what's done it. No, the, the point isn't his thankfulness. The point is that his thankfulness revealed his faith. Your faith, he says, has saved you. Dear friends, there are two lessons in this passage for us. The first is that Jesus is able to meet our needs with his mercy. He is our sustainer, he is our provider, he is our helper and our savior. It is from his hand that all good things come, even the blessings of afflictions that draw us to him in prayer and faith. And so if you are in need, call out to him for mercy. The second lesson is that true faith receives God's grace with thankfulness. And the difference between between these ten men, this one and these, these nine, it wasn't their outward healing. They all received that. The difference was the heart of gratitude that revealed saving faith. And so if you are in need, cry out to Christ for mercy. But if you have received mercy, cry out to him in thanksgiving. The whole life of the believer ought to be one of thanksgiving because all of our goods look like gifts. We recognize his grace by faith. Brothers and sisters, true faith receives God's grace with thankfulness. Let's pray together. O gracious and merciful God, We thank you for giving us what we do not deserve. We thank you for laying on Christ as our Savior and our substitute what we did deserve. We thank you for the gracious and glorious exchange of our sin for his righteousness. Oh Lord, make us thankful as your people. If there are those here who are in need, whether it's a spiritual need or or a physical need, we pray that we would come to you and find you more than sufficient for all of our needs. And finding you sufficient and finding you merciful, finding you gracious in Christ, make us thankful, O Lord. 
because of the faith that you work in us by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.